Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. We're keeping score in a very frenetic week this week, ladies and gentlemen. We have the end of the uh, Major League Baseball season a couple weeks away, playoffs starting. You've got the NFL after week two, NBA, um, NHL camps looking like they're opening, uh, NASCAR's playoffs, golf's playoffs, Olympic issues, we'll come to that in a minute. A very diverse stew of sports this week. Amy Tenery, um, global guru, digital editor. Uh, what do you think of the trillion-dollar business of sports being called a diverse stew? A diverse stew. Um, something about st- having stew after working out or doing sports seems unappealing, but I'll take it uh, from purely a business perspective. Um, I'm excited about the L.A. game, so why don't we kick the show off with that? Yeah, yeah, really, really good idea. Your perspective on uh, the, your takeaway of the uh, 2028 guaranteed announcement from Lima, Peru, as well as Paris's guarantee for 2024. Yeah, no, I think this is great. I'm really excited that the, the, the games are coming back to Los Angeles. You know, as we've seen time and time again, cities uh, across the world end up with financial problems from the Olympics, in large part because they end up building uh, lots of sports arenas and different infrastructure that they don't end up needing later on. And that creates a a huge uh, financial hole for them. Not so with Los Angeles, perhaps, because not only do they have the LA Coliseum, they also have a $2.6 billion brand new stadium opening up for the Chargers and Rams in 2020. And they also have facilities scattered across the the metropolis at UCLA, USC. So uh, they're well positioned to take advantage um, of a lot of these different facilities throughout the area. My question to you, however, is, you know, it's it's not all it's not all perfection here. One thing that concerns me is whether they're going to be able to handle this influx of traffic. As we all know, L.A. is notorious for having some of the worst traffic jams in the country, if not the world. So, I mean, do you think that's going to be a hiccup for the city? And, and if not, what what other issues do they have left to address? You sound like the people who predicted doom and gloom in London because they had the existing infrastructure built. In 2012, they said all heck was going to break loose because of the traffic. It scared everybody away. And so, you know, nobody was there. If they did, they took the tube and they knew how to go around the traffic barriers that were set up well in advance. So, listen, with all of the issues that L.A. and all their Olympic cities would have, Traffic's going to be an issue, but it's not going to be a threshold issue. It's nothing like Rio and Athens and Sochi, where they built $20, $30, $40 billion worth of infrastructure that they never used again and were way over budget. And so, you know, L.A. is becoming the first Olympic venue or city in the modern era where you don't really need to build anything big, not only the dorms, but also the opening and closing facilities. So no debt means even with traffic, the games are going to do very, very well. And that's a great segue into 2026 and the Winter Games. Remember, there are a lot of discussions in North America about bringing the games back there. What's your thought on all that? Well, right now it looks like it's shaping up to be Salt Lake City versus Denver. Uh, 
in my mind, it's it's a pretty close call. Six of one. Um, what do you, I mean? What do you think if you were if you were the Olympic Committee and you if it came down to those two cities, what would you pick? Well, again, it depends on what Denver has to build. It's a good case. Thomas Bach, the head of the Olympic Committee, is now looking at lean and lean and mean. So Paris. Beijing for 2022, we may not like that, but that's where the winter games are going to be. And Beijing, after holding the summer games a while ago, it's like uh, let's we we've we've already got a commitment uh, to uh, have the ones we've already got, and then the the Paris and then L.A. So I would pick uh, Salt Lake City slash Park City because. They had the games in 2002. They've had 75 winter championships and World Cup sporting events between then and now. And again, they don't have to build a whole lot. So I think that is a good example, streamlining the bid process, streamlining the facilities themselves. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. Um, You know, especially with winter games, it feels like either you got it or you don't. Because either you have you know, the slopes for the skiing and you have the facilities for, for the ice events, or you just don't. So uh, that well, your comments make a lot of sense to me. But why don't we move on to uh, the uh, upcoming Olympics, uh, Tokyo 2020. I know we've talked a lot about uh, the sort of threat of terrorism and, and how that might shot, you know, scare off advertisers and scare off um, you know, uh, visitors. But uh, it looks like that's not turning out to be the case, is it? Well, not for Tokyo, certainly. And if we get by these Korean Olympics with all the stuff that's going on this next February, then we'll be ready for anything. As far as Tokyo is concerned, a staggering $2.8 billion from 43 domestic sponsors. And that's an entirely different situation because they're setting all kinds of records, as you say, with sponsorship dollars. But let's remember, the operating budget is now $12.6 billion, which is way beyond what they predicted. And a lot of it is because they're building other stuff. So while the revenue is going up, The skyrocketing budget in Tokyo may go up as well. It's another interesting chapter as far as Olympics are concerned. You've got the lean and mean, don't build anything. Then you've got Tokyo, which is a lot of revenue, but they're building a lot of stuff. So as we say in the business, let's see how it all shakes out as far as that's concerned. Now, you shift us to football and give us your perspective on the whole Ezekiel Elliott situation. Well, I mean, we could talk about the Ezekiel Elliott situation for probably about an hour but um, and never really get ourselves anywhere. But um, one little piece of that story is how Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, has really been standing up to Roger Goodell. Now, as obviously, as we know, Goodell's gotten himself into a little bit of hot water with fans and how he has managed a lot of these crises, be they, you know, deflated footballs or domestic violence. Um, and he's really largely been able to stay stay around because he's had the support of these very, very powerful uh, team owners. Now, Jerry Jones is not happy about how Roger Goodell is handling Ezekiel Elliott's uh, situation and case. And um, this comes on the heels of Deflategate, which, you know, Robert Kraft says that the hatchet has been buried. I don't know that I necessarily believe it. I'm sure things are still a little bit tense between the two. So Goodell now finds himself with not one, but two incredibly powerful team owners. They own the Dallas Cowboys, Forbes has ranked as the most valuable franchise in the league. And in second place is the New England Patriots. So it's not just any team owner. It's These are the titans of the entire league. Um, so if I'm Goodell, I'm maybe getting a little bit worried that this, um, this could spark perhaps spark a domino effect. We could see um, more instances where he has to dole out uh, disciplinary actions. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you think that 
that that we could see more owners starting to defect now that they uh, see that Jerry Jones is kind of standing up for for what he believes is is right and proper. Couple issues here, you know, quickly. Um, Jerry Jones is not a member of the NFL Competition Committee, but he's kind of the de facto seventh member. And when he kind of sends to people, hey, the guy's made $200 million since he's been commissioner since 2006. That's a lot of money. Well, uh, what he doesn't uh, say is that he's made the league, Roger Goodell, a lot more than that. And Mm -hmm. if you're a CEO of a corporation, it doesn't look like you're making an inordinate amount of money when you consider how much you've made the bigger, greater good. So that piece is one that will all get resolved down the road. The other piece, which is really important, is as the players and owners negotiate and they give Roger Goodell the power to be the judge and jury, he appeals, uh, he decides the appeal. Sounds kind of silly in many ways, but other leagues um, send it to others besides the commissioner for the final appeal. And Roger Goodell really can't win for losing if it's a small um, um, penalty People are saying he's lax. If he's uh, uh, coming down hard on Ezekiel Elliott, for example, you know, Jerry Jones says, look, he's my running back, so you got to back off. And he's in a very difficult situation relative to discipline. So the ultimate takeaway here is when they negotiate the next deal, the money is on the table. They'll split it up as they should. Look for a renewed emphasis on negotiation relative to disciplinary process. Good for the owners, good for the players, probably good for Roger Goodell as well. Yeah, I, I agree. There. I think he's backed himself into a little bit of a corner here when he he and he alone is seen as deciding all of this. You know, he's just opening himself up to endless criticism. So I agree with you. I think they, they need to kind of... Uh, rethink how they handle disciplinary action. Um, yeah, and may- maybe he needs to, uh, you know, get out of town, take a vacation. Maybe he needs to go across the pond. Uh, maybe he can go watch one of the games that starts this week, and they have four games in London. And, you know, interesting segue, the Jaguars have adopted London as their second home. They play one game there this year and every year. Team owner Shad Khan, who's got a lot of business interests over in Europe, says maybe we want to play more than one game. And as we said before, the statement, the financial statement, makes it interesting since one game for the Jaguars over there as a home game is 20% basically of all of their revenue. And so do the Jaguars become England's team? Well, I don't know if they become England's team, but, you know, this all started because the Jaguars traditionally end up playing better once they come back for their London game than they, they did before. So... For a while, we were seeing the Jaguars trying to push that game up and up and up so they could kind of get that over the hump. So it's it's been a, a symbolically important game for them, for them for a while, but now, of course, there's, there's significance in dollars and cents. To me, I think what's most interesting is, is that this is sort of showing that maybe London games can actually work. Um, and... You know, if I'm Goodell, I must be pleased as punch that the Jaguars actually want to want to expand the number of games they play there because that's really been his pet project is trying to make American football a more global sport. So if we have a team that's actually enthusiastic about enduring a six-hour flight and jet lag and, you know, being thousands of miles away from their actual home base, that's great for him. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and if they actually can get other teams to be as enthusiastic as the Jaguars are. 
look for this chapter to be front and center as more and more games are played in London and as more uh, awareness in Germany and Mexico and Canada and NFL International takes takes fruit, uh, takes hold. Speaking of international, our last topic today, uh, Formula One, open-wheel racing, huge. The American kind of analog is IndyCar series. They've patched up a big rift over the last few years. The Andretti Racing Group is one of the top two or three Andretti Autosport. Zach Veach, 22-year-old phenom, is going to be driving next year as one of four American drivers. Group 1001, Dan Towers, the CEO, the sponsor, bringing new sponsor blood into that area. Um, the the kind of open wheel um, and, and Formula One over there, but the IndyCar racing... Hasn't been as big, but certainly it's taking a giant step. What's your perspective on all that? Well, sure. I mean, I'm I'm a relative outsider to the sport, so it's exciting for me to see someone like Zach Veach at such a young age to come up and and have this potential significance in the sport. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, is this somebody that we need to keep an eye on? Is this somebody that, who could potentially have a have an impact on on the popularity of the sport. I know you spoke with the leader of Andretti Autosport, so uh, it'd be interesting to hear his take on this. But I mean, do you do you look at um, competitors like Veach and you say this is somebody who's a game changer? Well, he's a great kid, and he w- went up through the ladder. He started with Andretti. He was in the Indy 500 this year, and he certainly what American racing needs. He is outspoken. He's got great values. He's got Group 1001, uh, the uh, insurance kind of conglomerate behind him, and Dan Towers because they've got shared values. And it's amazing what happens, by the way, in this industry, just broader answer to that question, when you have a three-year commitment beginning in next year. So they're all aligned at the hip, and Andretti now doesn't have to go out and find other drivers for his team because he's got four American drivers beginning with the St. Pete race the second week in March next year. And, of course, the Andretti family is a tremendous legacy. Mario Andretti, Michael, the guy who basically runs Andretti Autosports, Marco, the kid who races. They are protecting the family legacy and the brand. Michael began racing in 1980. He won the CART Indy PPG Car World Series in 91. The business of IndyCar, he went to Formula One abroad in 93. But he's covered the waterfront. The Andretti name is front and center in racing. And we had a chance to catch up with two Michael Andretti right after a press conference. Excuse the noise in it, by the way, but he was in a crowded room, but he sat down with me for a good deal of time to talk the business of IndyCar and racing in general. Professor Rick Haro at Sonoma, the business of sports and a major announcement, Group 1001, Zach Veach, Andretti Racing, the mastermind, the middle of the brand, Michael Andretti. Do you like being called the middle of the brand? Uh, I've never been called that before. Okay, well, all right, so your dad is the top of the brand, Marco is the bottom of the brand, and you're in the middle of the brand. It's interesting. So you began racing basically in 1980, and in 1991 uh, you won the Card World Series, and now in uh, 2017 we've got another issue. Um, and a great watershed announcement today. Contrast kind of the business of IndyCar generally, open wheel racing, uh, in 80, 91, and today. How's it all evolved? It's interesting. I mean, it's evolved quite a lot. Uh, technology has a lot, had a lot to do with it, uh, the way things have gone, you know, where uh, technology came to a point where it was way ahead of what, you know, 
drivers can sustain or things like that. So, so then, you know, it used to be where people would come up with great ideas and then you go and do it on the racetrack. But then, as it ended up, technology took over to the point where now you had to come up with rules to limit the technology. You know, so you sort of went backwards you know, throughout the years the way it's worked. But, uh, it's been quite an interesting journey, uh, for sure. Um, you know, the popularity of it is, is uh, it's always been up there, and, but there's been times when it's gone like this and like that and that. And uh, I'm proud to say I think we're on our way back up again. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be involved with it. It's such a fantastic sport. Is the industry over the rift? Oh yeah, yeah. We're it's all behind us now, and we're all going forward. And, you know, we're looking forward to the last, you know, five years. There's a plan set out up for the first time, I think, in the history of the series, where they have a, a great plan laid out on what they're going to do with the rules package and things like that. And you know, our TV package is up, and I think there's been great dialogue on what's going to happen with that with the future. So there's a lot of real positive things. You know, it's interesting. This is not a racetrack, it's a laboratory. This is science. You win or lose a race before you get here, but you also win or lose the race the Friday before the Sunday. A lot it, different. Every moment is, is important, whether it's at the... It, the race could be won at the shop. The race could be won because of what you did in the practice on Friday. Uh, you know, every moment's important because you're always learning it. And some days you're going to learn more, and those days are the ones that are going to help you win the race on Sunday. And it's, uh, it's quite nice. Well, you talked about the popularity, and, and obviously the business metrics are going up, but nothing better than having a new sponsor who basically just formed a, a, a major conglomerate, could have gone anywhere, but Group 1001 chooses to go into IndyCar. How does it make you feel? Uh, very proud. And I think it says something about IndyCar racing. That, you know, it shows that we are getting back up there because we've, we've made quite a few announcements the last year or so of new, new companies coming in, and, and Group 1001 is one of the big ones, and, and we're really proud. And they're not just coming in on for a one-off. They're coming in. They made a three-year commitment, which is huge, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm really proud that uh, you know uh, they they chose us. And that. All right, little elevator promotional speech. So the Dreddy team has four locked up, long-term, young, high potential, high ceiling Americans. How does it make you feel too? Really proud. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm really proud. You know, it wasn't planned that way, but uh, in the end, it's like, wow, we have four fantastic American drivers in our team. And uh, it's definitely something we're going to talk about. Just, we're proud of it. So, the multi year deal aspect of this, and plus you've had new partners, you have Napa, you have others. One year commitments are fine as a band aid, but give us really practical issues that um, make you happy about a multi year deal. What's great about a multi year deal, you can plan ahead, you, you have continuity. You know, it's like so many times you're getting into February and you're still not knowing exactly how the team is going to be put together because you don't know how many cars you're going to be running. And now to be able to plan it out over three years is just uh, huge. You know, uh, I think it's a big advantage. And, and uh, I think it's going to affect our results in a positive way on the racetrack. I think a lot has to do with the droid management and sophistication of leadership as far as the Andretti team. How does that sound? Oh, thank you. But, uh, <laughs> we, I, I gotta say, we've got a lot of great people on this team. And, uh, you know, we've 
we've come a long way. You know, there's been times our team's been like this, and, and we're definitely on a high on a high right now. And I think it all has to do with the moves we made with putting right people in the right places and bringing in a lot of great talent. And uh, that's all the way through the team in every aspect. Uh, uh, and, uh, I'm very proud of everybody on this team. Let's talk about the talent. Let's talk about the driving talent. So you could have had anybody as a fourth driver. Why Zach Beach? Uh, Zach was really important to me because you know he he started his career with us in, in, in Formula 2000s. Then he went with us to Mazda. Then he went with us to Indy Lights. So he went through the whole system. Uh, the road to Indy system, and it was really disappointing that we couldn't get him to the big car. You know, there was a few deals worked on and fell apart. Um, but to finally be able to to close that chapter with him him being in our car uh, uh, is just fantastic because you know it. Uh, uh, it just shows that the whole system that they have laid out works. You know, and to have a great young talent with him, he could be, you know, a big part of our future. So, the, the, you know, the other piece of this too is when you look at stick and ball sports, you compare them. Every one of them the, the, uh, hooks their future to their farm system, the cultivation of young talent. Your ladder here seems to work. Yeah, it does. And not only with the drivers, but it works with our mechanics and engineers. Yeah. We bring them up through. So it's uh, it's very important to have that. I mean, you know, like you say, other sports, you know, have top, you know, you have football, right? You have high school, you got peewees, and you got high school, and you got all the way through, you know, and, and racing has that now, you know, and it's had it now the last few years, and uh, and it's working, you know. 90% of the guys out here on the racetrack have gone through that. International audience, 1993, Formula One, Marlboro McLaren. Um, looking back 25 years, um, how do you how do you view Formula One? You view it fondly? You view it with misgivings? What's 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 your what's your perspective? Well, I'm, I'm always a fan of Formula One. I, I was never even as bad a time as I had over there. I never lost my life for Formula One. Um, maybe certain people in Formula One. Um, it's like, but, like uh, human beings all Yeah, right? you know, yeah. but, uh, you know, the sport itself, you know, is fantastic. And, you know, I, you know, it was a hard, hard time for me. Um, you know, I think you know, there was a lot of things going on politically and things like that. And I was used as a pawn and everything. Uh, so that was frustrating, but, but the actual sport itself, I love it. You know, I love going to Formula One races. I watch every one of them on TV. And so, you know, I'll always be a fan. I'm a racist fan. I watch all races. Is there room for Formula One expanding in North America, or is, that, uh, is, is there a ceiling on that? It's a tough market for, for Formula One because the uh, U.S. has so many different sports. And then not only do you have all the stick and ball sports, but then you also have NASCAR and IndyCar yes. you know, in the same realm. So it's, uh, it's I think, uh, it's a tough nut for them. And, you know, they do have their niche following, and they always will here. But, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a tough market. All right, so we're here at Sonoma, and it's a road course. We have the Rolex, which is 24-hour skill. You've got Formula One, obviously. You've got IndyCar. You've got NASCAR. Um, the diversity of drivers and the skill it takes to perform highly at all those levels. What do you say to the relative uninformed who say that uh, these drivers are not athletes? And don't hit me. I, I, that's just, I mean, you're ignorant to the yeah, sport. Right. I don't understand it. I mean, 
these guys are major athletes. I mean, they told me that what they go through in terms of working out and stuff. I know myself. I mean, it's probably one of the things that drove me to retirement. It seems like all I did was work out, you know, and, and, uh, and that's what these guys do. They, they live in a gym, you know, and, and uh, they are in fantastic shape. I mean, if you felt, if I took this car right now, my whole life, if I went out and one of those race cars, after one lap, I'd be falling out of seat because I'm not in shape. I mean, you have no idea how physical these cars are. Someone ought to test it, and that's the cynical thing, and obviously that's the answer. So basically, finally, Andretti Charities, it's a big deal. Philanthropy, a very important component of what we do in the industry. Michael Andretti Foundation, Speedway Children's Charities. Talk a little bit about that aspect of your business. Well, we do. You know, I formed a, a charity when I retired, and I, and I thought, you know, I, I didn't pick one charity. I, I made it that... You know, we go to so many different markets, and some things are more important in some markets than others. And so we pick our charities that we get behind in each market or with our sponsors. You know, and, and, and I just do it to try to help bring more recognition to whatever that charity is, and try to help make raise money. And you raise a lot of money. Yeah, we. I don't know. Never heard of, I don't know what numbers. You know, it's got to be in the millions of dollars that we've done over the last ten or so years, and, and uh, you know. Proud of that, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit of giving back, and, and uh, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a good thing. Important for the brand, Mar Mario, Michael, Marco. Um, what do you do today to kind of protect the legacy and protect the family brand? Nothing's inevitable, and so you know, life after. How do you deal with it? Every move that we make in our business, everything we do is all about the brand and how it affects our brand. So, you know, that that's our golden egg and and so we treat it that way and, and you know, we make moves, we turn things down because we feel like it won't be good for the brand, you know. So it's all about that for us. Michael Andretti, thank you very much. Thank you. Really thank you. appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch, and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.